0: fix our attention and our focus upon Jesus Christ and what He has done. As we direct our attention to Your Word, may we see Christ and Him alone, that You, our Father, might be glorified in and through Your Son and by Your church. We pray for the Spirit's aid in this, that You would send Your Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have three options today for a sermon on Easter Sunday. Um, First, I could continue on in the Gospel of John with the next passage that we would normally be tackling. Uh, the problem with that is that the next passage that we would normally be in really does not tie in directly to uh, the resurrection or any kind of an Easter theme, and so I would have to kind of shoehorn it in. And shoehorning stuff into messages kind of violates one of my unwritten rules. Uh, actually, it's a written rule, and it violates it. The second option would be to take a sort of a familiar, uh, a familiar passage from the New Testament. And there are lots to choose from that directly teach on the subject of the re- of the resurrection, and that would be a very easy message to put together. Or my third option would be to take a rather obscure passage of Scripture, one that's probably lesser known, not one that is really preached on in your average church this morning, uh, one that is not likely to make it onto the list, to the short list of Scripture passages that you would read on an Easter Sunday morning, a passage that if you were to look at it, you would think to yourself at, at first that there's really not enough here to make one sermon out of, and then after you spent, say, three or four days studying it, you realize there's four sermons worth of material here, and now you have to cram it all into one, hypothetically speaking. That is, in fact, what I did. So turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. Psalm 16. There's probably only one verse in the whole psalm that is going to be familiar to you, and uh, and that may be only because we read it in Acts chapter uh, 2, and you remember what the significance of that verse is, and that would be verse 10. The New Testament has over 100 references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it would be fair to say that if you were to take the resurrection out of the New Testament, you would have no New Testament left. You, you would strip it literally of all of its meaning, all of its significance, the whole purpose of the New Testament. And the preaching of the apostles in the early church was filled with references to, allusions to, and was founded on the resurrection of Christ. So if you, if you took the resurrection out of the apostles' preaching, they would have nothing to preach about. Uh, that is why Paul says, if, if Christ is not risen, we are of all men most to be pitied, because the resurrection was their message. That is the, the central element of the church's worship and has been for 2,000 years. The resurrection is the central element of the church's preaching, and has been for 2,000 years. And the resurrection is the central element of the church's message, and has been for 2,000 years. So without the resurrection, you have no church, you have no New Testament, and you really have no point to even be here this morning. But as we look at the, the preaching of the apostles, and maybe you noticed that this morning when we were reading in Acts chapter 2, their preaching on the resurrection was grounded in two things. Number one, the historical re- reality of the resurrection, a literal, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. They based it upon that historical fact. Second, they rooted their preaching on the Old Testament in, uh, sorry, on, they rooted their preaching on the resurrection in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has prophecies and predictions and allusions to the resurrection of the Messiah. So in the mind of the apostles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the fulfillment of the promise that God made to the nation of Israel concerning his son. And we're going to be looking today at one such promise, and that is in Psalm 16. We will read the entire psalm together, and then I will tell you how we're going to break this psalm down to to try and cover the entire thing in, in one sitting. A mictum of David, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken." Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And here's the familiar verse, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And that psalm begins with an introduction, and it is actually before verse 1. And it says, a mictum of David. What is a mictum? I doubt if anybody here knows what a mictum is, because nobody really knows what a mictum is. It's kind of a curious word, and it only occurs six times in in all of Scripture, all of them in the Old Testament. And it it, it comes in that that little introductory remark that is before verse 1. And we always need to remember when we're studying a psalm that all of those little introductory remarks, which are in my Bible or in italics and really fine print, those are part of the psalm. Those were added by the author or one of his contemporaries. We consider that as inspired scripture. Some of them are really short, like this one, a mictum of David. Others of them, like in verse uh, chapter 18, Psalm 18, for instance, are rather extended introductions to the psalm. But it's scripture, and keep that in mind. The six references to a mictum all occur in the psalms, and all of them in the introductory comments to the psalms. Psalm 16 is called a mictum. And then Psalms 56 through 60 are called mictums, and those are all references, all, all those references to a mictim are in the introductory comments. Now, what is a miktum? It's not really a song, it's not really a, a, a psalm, or a song, or just a poem. A mictim is, most people suspect that a miktum. the word miktum comes from one of three sources. Now, it may be a combination of all of these, but keep in mind, nobody really knows what a miktum is, but the enigmaticum is a word that possibly comes from another word which means secret or precious or mysterious and so this would be uh david's way of saying what i am writing to you here is a precious mysterious secret now if that is what david is referring to then it would make sense especially in light of verse 10 where david is really not writing about himself but about somebody else so it might be that david as he as he finished this psalm realized that what he had written in verse 10, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, there was something hidden in this psalm which David nor his contemporaries really understood. And so he labeled it a a, a mysterious psalm or a a mictum, a secret. There's some secret here, and verse 10 contains that secret. Some people suggest that the word mictum actually comes from a different Hebrew word. That Hebrew word meaning something engraved or stamped, something etched in like a stone or a tablet. If that is the case, then what David is saying when he refers to this as a mictum is that there is something here that is so precious that it deserves to be engraved in a stone tablet and kept forever. There is something really significant in this psalm. Uh, It would be the equivalent of me saying to you, look, what I'm about to say, you can write this in stone. In other words, this is so trustworthy and significant that you can etch this forever. Or it's possible, some suggest, that the word mictum actually comes from a different Hebrew word which means Fine gold or something stamped in gold or impressed in gold. Now it might be the case then that there is some combination of all three of these. David may be saying, look, what I'm about to say to you is mysterious, it is secretive, it is so precious, it is worthy to be stamped into fine gold. That was his view of this psalm. That's what a mictum is. Now the author is obviously David. We learn that not just from the introduction, but also from Acts chapter 2, where Peter says that David spoke these things by inspiration of the Spirit as a prophet. So we affirm that David is the author of this, King David is the author of this, but we would be remiss if we only understood this in terms of what David intended. Because Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that verse 10, Peter, uh, David said, speaking not of himself, but as a prophet, he looked forward to Christ. And so Peter says verse 10 is not just David's voice, it's actually the Lord Jesus' voice in the psalm. So we recognize that though David is the author, there are two Two persons speaking here, not just David about his own circumstance and his own feelings, but there is also the Lord Jesus speaking here in verse 10, specifically in verse 10, if not the whole psalm, but specifically in verse 10 when he says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now the theme of the psalm, before we get into these verses, this is all introductory comments, the theme of the psalm is that the Lord secures the righteous, not just in this life, but through death and into the life to come. That's the theme of the psalm. David covers everything in this life, death, and into the life to come. And the key verse, though it's most familiar to us, is not verse 10. I would suggest that if we were to boil down the whole teaching of this psalm into one sentence, some people could probably argue it might be verse 2, but I would suggest to you it's actually verse 9, particularly the last half of verse 9, where David says, My flesh also will dwell securely. That really is his hope. That in this life, through death, and into the life to come, God secures the righteous. Now before we begin verse 1, I want to remind you that when we talk about the righteous in a context like this, we are not talking about people who have done righteous deeds in order to merit God's favor. But even in the Old Testament, the righteous was a designation to refer to those to whom God showed favor by imputing or crediting them righteousness. It was not just those folks who did enough good deeds that they were holier than all the other people around them. That's not the idea behind the designation, the righteous. When I speak of the righteous, I'm referring to the elect, the chosen ones, the saints of God to whom God has shown His favor and graciously poured out His favor. Those are the righteous ones. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was righteous on the basis of faith. So we are talking about those who have trusted in Christ who have trusted in the Lord, who have, in the words of verse 1, made God their refuge. And because they have trusted in God, they are righteous on the basis of faith. That's the righteous in this psalm. So now let's begin. The theme is that God secures the righteous not only in this life, but through death and into the life and the ages to come. David looks at everything. He actually, David gives us a glimpse at eternity future. That's the beauty of this psalm. Life, death, and eternity future, all in this psalm. And there are five things here. We're going to divide the psalm up into five sections. Five things here which describe or explain how God does this securing and the benefits that come to the righteous. First, in verse 1, is the prayer of the righteous. Second, in verses 2 through 4, the perspective of the righteous. Verses 5 through 8, the prosperity of the righteous. Verses 9 and 10, the promises to the righteous. And verse 11, the pleasures of the righteous. The prayer of the righteous, the perspective of the righteous, the prosperity of the righteous the promises to the righteous and then the pleasures of the righteous all the way down in verse 11. So, beginning in verse 1, look at the prayer of the righteous. David says, "Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you." Now, there's a lot a lot there that we need to cover, but I do just want you to know what the what David prays about at the beginning of this psalm. "Preserve me, O Lord. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you." David is praying to the Lord to be preserved And that is, in fact, what the rest of the psalm is going to describe is exactly the ways in which and the times in which God does preserve His people. David is able to pray that the Lord would preserve him based upon the second half of that phrase, I have taken refuge in you. I have made God my refuge. I have made God my strength. And so David, knowing that he has trusted in God to preserve him, can pray that God would preserve him. Now, ultimately, if you look at only this life, sometimes it seems as if God doesn't really preserve the righteous, right? Look at all the afflictions that David suffered. Look at the afflictions of the righteous. There are whole psalms written about just the afflictions and the sufferings of the righteous themselves. Sometimes it seems as if God does fail to preserve the righteous. But that is only if you look at the lot and circumstances of the righteous in this life and this life alone. But this psalm doesn't do that. David backs up and looks at the lot of the righteous, in this life, through death, and into eternity future. And looking at the entire perspective on the righteous and what God does for the righteous, David knows that he is secure in this life, through death, and into the life to come. And so he can pray that God would preserve him because he has taken refuge in God. Now, all men take refuge in something. Everybody does. Even every even the atheist takes refuge in something. He trusts or His satisfaction, or His enjoyment, or His pleasure, or His security in a thousand different things, whether it's wisdom, or science, or philosophy, or His education, or the culture, or the president, or the political powers or the kings of the earth, or other men, or His friendships, His power, His health. Everybody trusts in something. Let the righteous say that I have trusted in the Lord. The Lord is my refuge. And when the Lord is our refuge, we know that ultimately we cannot and will not ever be disappointed, because God secures the righteous in this life through death and into the age to come. That is David's confidence. That is his hope. That is his security. I pray to the Lord, preserve me. And by the way, God is honored when we pray that. That is, it is the delight of the saint to pray that. Preserve me, O Lord. Can I ask with confidence that God would preserve me everlastingly? I can ask that with confidence. Why? Because I'm trusting in him to do so. And it is not my trust that, it is not my trust that makes him able to preserve me everlastingly. The fact that he has promised to preserve me everlastingly encourages my trust in him so that I am trusting in him because of his promises. So I can pray to the Lord, preserve me. And I know that it is in fact the good shepherd's will to preserve me everlastingly. And God is not only, del- not only our delight to pray that to God, it is God's delight when his saints pray that to him. God wants us to trust him, and this is simply, The expression of a faithful, faith filled, believing heart. Preserve me, O God. And because I have absolute confidence in His ability to do that, I can pray with absolute confidence that that is His will to preserve me everlastingly. And so, saints, pray it. Pray it. That is a biblical prayer. Preserve me, God. Keep me, knowing that He will, because He has promised to do just that. That's the prayer of the righteous. Second, look at the perspective of the righteous. The perspective of the righteous in verses 2 through 4. And I want you to notice three things there. First, I want you to notice that the righteous cherish a delight in God. Verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Now there's a translation difference there if you're using an older translation. And I'll deal with that in just a second. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now notice that David doesn't just say, I said to the Lord, okay, you are God. This is not just David recognizing Yahweh is God. This is David recognizing and confessing, you are my God. There's a difference between confessing you are God and saying you are my God. When you say you are my God, that is faith reaching out and grabbing hold of the promises of Yahweh and saying these belong to me. These are mine and he is mine and I am his and nothing can ever shake that or disturb that. That is David, that is the expression of personal faith, personal religion and personal trust saying you are my God and I have no good besides you. David is simply confessing All the good that I enjoy in this life, all of it comes from God. Let me ask you something, Christian. Do you enjoy any good thing in this world that you have not first received from the Father of lights who gives every good gift to you and in whom there is no shadow of turning or changing at all? Have you enjoyed anything good in this life that does not come from his hand? No, that's all David is saying. He is saying every good thing that I have received, I have nothing that has come to me besides or apart from what God has given to me. Every good I enjoy is an expression of His goodness. And further, every good that I enjoy is nothing compared to Him. Because He is infinitely good, every good thing I have enjoyed is merely a glimpse at His goodness. And if I were to take the sum total of all these lesser goods, every good thing I have enjoyed, every good thing you have enjoyed, and we heap them all together and add them all up, they still are nothing compared to the goodness of a very good God. That is what he is saying. Now the King James actually translates that, My goodness extendeth not to thee. If that's the way that that phrase should be translated from the Hebrew, then what it means is this. David is saying, all the good that I have enjoyed, I have enjoyed from God. In other words, He gives me goodness, but my goodness that I have received from Him does not extend back to Him. In other words, I do not contribute anything to the goodness of God. There is nothing that I can do that adds anything to His glory, anything to His person, or anything to His goodness. And however you translate it, the truth stands the same. With a righteous cherish, cherish and delight in God. Second, the righteous also delight in the people of God, or the other saints. Look at verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. It is the delight of the saint to be with other saints. And you know why that is the case? Because other saints remind the saint of the good God that he has trusted in. It is the delight of the saint to, to be with other saints who have also delight in God. And who also find their refuge in God. And who have also trusted in God and own God as their own. And so saints love to be with other saints. Christians love to be with other Christians. Before I became a Christian, I didn't want to be with other Christians. You were pathetic people. I didn't want anything to do with you. But after I became a Christian, guess what? Who changed? Christians didn't change. I changed. And suddenly I wanted to be with other Christians. And enjoy the fellowship of other Christians. Do you, enjoy the, do you enjoy the fellowship of Christians? Do you like being with Christians? Or when you get among Christians, do you feel like a fish out of water? If you feel like a fish out of water, you probably are a fish out of water. There's a reason for that. Are you content with worldly associations and worldly affiliations and worldly conversation and worldly fellowship and worldly company and worldly talk? If you don't delight in being with the saints of God, you can be sure you are not one yourself. The saints love other saints. We delight in that. 1 John chapter 3 says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. One of the things that indicates to me that I'm a genuine Christian, I've been saved, is that I have a love for other Christians. And my love for other Christians is evidence to me that I have gone from the domain of darkness, the domain of death, and I have passed into life because now I have a love that I never had before. That's the evidence of being with the saints. That is, uh, that is the evidence of, of my conversion. And that is David's way of expressing that. The, the saints who are the majestic ones in the earth, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. They would say, I, "I not only take refuge in God, but I delight in being around those who likewise take refuge in God." You know what it attracts? What it is that attracts saints to each other? It is—I'll tell you what it is that attracts me. I don't mean this in I'm just in—you know—enjoy fellowship type of attraction. What the reason I enjoy being around other Christians is because I see in other Christians the image of Christ being formed in them, and it's the Lord that I love. And the more of Christ I see in you, the more I desire to be with you and spend time with you and enjoy being around you. And that is is likewise—that is what attracts Christians to each other. It's not that we are all spanky people and we like being with each other just because we're great together. It is that we see in the other person the image of Christ whom we love. And you know what it is that, that uh, repels the world from Christians? The image of Christ in them whom they hate. It's not the person. It's Christ in them that they hate. That's what repels the world. And that's what attracts saints to each other. So the righteous not only delight in God, we delight in God's people. And thirdly, we have a disdain for idolatry. Verse 4. This is the perspective of the righteous. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Uh, These are the the majestic ones. The righteous ones are are the ones in whom we delight. And And conversely, the opposite of that is that the wicked are the ones that we do not delight in. Those are the ones who have bartered for another god that word bartered means literally to pursue something to purchase it or attain it with a purchase price it was sometimes used of a man pursuing a bride or attaining a wife uh, bartering for a wife I, I know we use the word courting we don't don't use the word borrowing if you're looking for a spouse don't use the term bartering because that's a bad thing it kind of conjures up a bad image in that day though it meant the idea of pursuing something to acquire it even to purchase it at great price so david looks at the wicked who are involved in idolatry, and he says those who are involved in the idolatry, who have bartered, pursued, run after, and chased after other gods, they multiply their sorrows. That is such a profoundly true statement. Have you ever noticed how the wicked will pursue their idols? Not by the ones and the tens, but the hundreds. There are thousands of things that idol worshippers trust in. Thousands of things. Anything but the one true God. And they multiply their idols and they pursue other gods. And in doing so, they actually multiply their griefs and they multiply their sorrows. Matthew Henry had a real pithy statement regarding this verse. Matthew Henry said this, they that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. Now listen to this. For whosoever thinks one God too little will find two too many and yet hundreds not enough. Now that's profound. You think about that for I think about that all week long. A hundred gods, a hundred false idols is not enough for a pagan. Not enough. And yet he also finds that the griefs that come with even two gods is more than he can bear. There is nothing that vexes an unrighteous person more than their pursuit of their idols. Because the idols give, give no satisfaction. They give no glory. They offer no comfort, no solace, no security. There is nothing that vexes their soul more than the pursuit of an idol and yet there is nothing that they pursue with more zeal than their idols. Whoever will not have one God is enough, will find that two is too many, and yet hundreds are not enough. Two idols bring more griefs than he can bear, and yet a hundred idols is just not enough. It's that, that quandary that the unrighteous is in. And David wouldn't have anything to do with those who are idolaters. There's something about seeing God dishonored by those who worship other gods that vexes the heart of the righteous and that is expressed in verse 4 I will I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood likely a reference to the blood sacrifices of the worship service that, that the worship that went on with that false god David is saying I will have nothing to do with their worship practices those who multiply their gods multiply their griefs and I will have nothing to do with anything that they do in respo- in, in in conjunction with their worship and their love and adoration of that god and then he says in verse 4 nor will I take their names upon my lips. Now that doesn't mean just that we don't say the name Allah, for instance, in a sentence, like I just did. Nothing wrong with that. What David has in mind here is, I will not speak favorably of that, of that false God. Not that he would not mention their name, but that he would not give favorable mention or say positive or honoring things to that false God. Because anything that is said that honors a false God dishonors the true God. So, To put it in our context, David would never say, hey, Allah is a God of peace. He's a great God for the Muslims. He has his own thing. I'm sure they love him and all that's really good. David would never say such a thing. He would never give any kind of honor to a false god. I will not have anything to do with their practices. I will not even speak favorably of them in the least. It wouldn't have anything to do with it. Stay as far away as you possibly can. Spurgeon had had a way of saying this. He quoted an old proverb. The old proverb said it's not safe to eat at the devil's mess no matter how long the spoon is. It's never safe to eat at the devil's mess no matter how long the spoon is. You stay far enough away, as long as you're eating his delicacies, you're still involved in it. It doesn't matter how far away you stay from it while you're involved in it. And that was David's perspective on idolatry. I don't have anything to do with their practices. I won't attend that service. I don't have anything to do with their idolatry. And I won't even speak favorably of it. Because it is dishonoring to the one true and living God. So the righteous, that is the prayer of the righteous, the perspective of the righteous. And now third, I want you to notice the prosperity of the righteous in verses 5 through 8. And I say prosperity not because I'm starting a television ministry and I want to get a bunch of money to finish the new facility, but because prosperity that is described here is actual genuine biblical prosperity. It's, unfortunately, it's unfortunate that that term prosperity has been sort of warped and attached and spoken of only in financial terms. But the prosperity and the blessings that are described here are in fact true biblical prosperity. Verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. That is to say that the Lord Himself is my inheritance. He is my inheritance. You may be rich in all of this world's goods and have everything that this world has to offer, but but in God's perspective, you are a pauper if you have not God. Likewise, you may have God and God alone and be bereft of all that this world has to offer, and yet you are rich beyond the world's imaginations. Because all that the world has to offer is going to be burned up, it's going to disappear, it's going to be gone. And the thing is, with the wicked, who have all of this world's goods but have not God, when they die, they lose everything. With the righteous, who have God, and even though they have none of this world's goods, when they die, they don't lose anything. In fact, they gain everything. See how switched that is? And the world says, prosperity is this, and God says, prosperity is this. And David recognized that true, genuine blessing, true, genuine prosperity from God is to have God as his portion, as his inheritance. God is my wealth. God is my riches. And no matter what the world brings or takes away, I always have God and I can never be made a pauper, even if everything is taken from me. That is why he calls us the majestic ones up in verse 4. The majestic, or verse 3, as to the saints who are in the earth, they're the majestic ones. See, we don't, tend, we don't tend to think of the righteous as being the majestic ones or the excellent ones. You look at the condition of the righteous in this world and it looks like they suffer affliction and they go without And they are persecuted and they are mistreated and they go and, and they suffer. In what way are they the majestic ones? You realize that God has not chosen the, the wealthy of the world and the noble of the world and the powerful and the influential and the great and the wise. He has chosen instead the foolish and the insignificant and the weak things of this world, the things that are weak and significant and insignificant and foolish in the eyes of the world so that he might bring to nothing the things that are great in the eyes of the world. So in what way are the majestic ones, are the, the saints the majestic ones, the excellent ones? I'll tell you how. You've got to step back and look at it from eternity's perspective. Do you realize, Christian, that you will judge angels? You'll judge angels. Do you realize that when you stand on the new heavens and the new earth with God and the rest of the saints, that you inherit everything that is God's? It's all yours. He has given to us everything in His Son. If He has given us His Son, will He not with Him also freely give us all things? See, in the eyes of the world, the saints are the insignificant. They're the lowlifes, the dregs of society. But in the eyes of the kingdom, the saints are the majestic ones. And those who are wicked, they and everything that they have and everything that they love perishes. And they're left with nothing. So verse 6, the lines that have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And the heritage in the lines there refers to kind of the idea of lotting up, of apportioning up a land or an inheritance. The head of the household would apportion up this much land goes to this son, this much land goes to that son uh it kinda has that idea of what has been given to me by the decree of my father. That is that is David's idea there. The lines that have fallen to me, what has been apportioned for God by his providence and by his sovereignty, what God has apportioned for me, it is beautiful to me. And why could David say that? Because he was absolutely confident that what God had given to him was in fact exactly what God wanted for him. And and he says, Beautiful to me, I, I trust in the providence, I trust in the sovereignty of God. God is my inheritance. Now look at verse Seven, God is also my teacher. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. My mind instructs me in the night. And the imagery there is of of laying on your bed at night and reflecting upon and meditating on the goodness of God. And David says, even in the night hours, in the stillness of my heart, in the stillness of my mind, when nothing else is going on around me, whether it's out watching the sheep or laying down in bed at night and just thinking upon what God has done without the distraction of an iPod or an iPad or a television screen, my mind instructs me in the night. I said that I meditate upon what God has done. You want to know how to get your affections turned toward God so that you love him more? I'll tell you how you do it. You think upon him much, and your affections and your emotions will follow your intellect. If your if your intellect follows your emotions, you're in trouble. You want your emotions to follow your intellect. Think upon him much. Set him in the words of verse 8 continually before you in your right hand at your so that he is at your right hand, and you will never be shaken. Verse 8 is the words of a man who set the Lord before him. So that the Lord was before him. In his mind's eye, in his mind, in his heart, in his affections, the Lord was there. And if he turned here, the Lord was continually there. Wherever David turned, wherever David went, whatever David went through, the Lord was always before him. And David, as he saw everything in the presence of God, could say, Therefore, I will not be shaken. I will not tremble. I will not shake. I will not doubt because the Lord is continually before me. It occurred to me this last week. Do you know how much of our sin we would shed if we were just able to say the Lord is continually before me? You know how much of our sin we would shed? Do you think we would really sin if the Lord was consciously always before us? We wouldn't. David would say, the Lord is continually before me, and I set him there. And the minute I realize he's not there, I put him back right where he belongs. And then that's how it happens. Our eyes are reflected, our eyes are deflected, our eyes change somewhere else. We have to continually put the Lord before us. And when we do that, we can say with David, I will never be shaken. That is the that is the prosperity of the righteous, that God is always before us. He is our lot, He is our inheritance, He is our portion, He is our cup in this life and in the life to come. And that leads us to the promises to the righteous, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Like I said, verse 9, the end of verse 9 is really the, the heart of this psalm. Uh, everything about this psalm is about the security of the righteous, the security that David has in God because he has made God his refuge So he can say in verse 9, my flesh, therefore, will dwell securely. Now, I don't think that David is talking there just in terms of this life, because David was chased, he was persecuted, uh, David was abandoned by his friends, he was betrayed, even David had to run and David died. So in what way does verse verse 9 really cash out if David died? Did his flesh dwell securely forever in this world, in this life? No, it's not. But the perspective of the psalm, remember, is not just from this life. David is backing up, and we see in verse 11, he's talking about the perspective of the righteous from eternity. Therefore, my flesh will dwell securely, because I know that whatever befalls me in this life, God is my security in this life, He is my security through death, and ultimately, He is my security in the age to come. The promise, in verse 10, is the basis of all of that. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is quoting this passage on the day of Pentecost, he, is, he says to them, his commentary on this passage, uh, Peter says, We may say for certain that David both died and was buried, and his grave is with us to this day. So David said, My body will not suffer decay. Peter says, David's body is with us. It has suffered decay. And then Peter says, David therefore, being a prophet of God, knew that God would set a man upon His throne. And therefore, David prophesied not about himself, but about someone else. That is, the Christ whom you have crucified. Peter applied this to Jesus. He is the one whose soul was not abandoned to Sheol, the grave. He is the one whose body did not suffer decay. And Jesus' body didn't. David's did, but Jesus's didn't. And so verse 10 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the question. If Peter, if David knew that his body would indeed suffer decay, and David had to know that he would not rise as other men had not risen, it would be just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all who gone before him, David had to know that his body would in fact suffer decay in the grave. David is looking forward to a promise then given to somebody else. David had to know that. David had to know that verse 10 was speaking of somebody else. And if David knew that the promise in verse 10 was not directly to him, but in somebody else, why would that promise given to somebody else cause him to say, my flesh will dwell securely and I can trust in the Lord? Why would David say that? We can answer that question with another question and here it is. What does the resurrection of the righteous one, the holy one, guarantee to all the saints? What does the resurrection of Christ guarantee to all saints? The answer to that is our resurrection. So David could know that even though my flesh will suffer decay, it will not be forever, and he will not abandon me to the grave. In other words, I will not suffer death forever. I will suffer death, but because he was looking forward to the Messiah, his son, to whom the Lord would promise he will not abandon his soul, he will not allow his flesh to undergo decay, David knew that his security was certain. All David was doing was looking to the promise made to Christ and saying, Because I will trust in God and His promise to do this. I am secure. It's the same thing we do. How do I know that someday I will rise again? That I will stand in my flesh and I will see God? How do I know that I get a resurrection body? Because I can look back to the resurrection of Christ and know that because God has promised this to Him and fulfilled that promise to Him, I likewise am secure. So God will fulfill all of His promises to me based upon what He has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all David was doing. That is the promise to the righteous. Now look at the pleasures of the righteous. Verse 11. Verse 11 is worth, this is a four point sermon all by itself. Verse 11. And all we have time for me to do is basically to go through these four points, kind of list them with real brief commentary. Verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There are four things there, four pleasures there that the righteous enjoy. First, the righteous enjoy the path of life verse 11 you'll make known to me the path of life we enjoy the path of life and by that path of life david doesn't mean that he was going to live forever in his earthly deteriorating body david simply meant he was looking at it again this is the perspective from eternity where where do you and i enjoy true life everlasting life and never-ending life only in heaven and David is talking about the day that he would stand in the presence of god that's what the next phrase says David is looking forward to the time when he would stand in the presence of God and he would say, that is the path of life. There will come a time when the righteous stand in glorified bodies before the King of all creation. And death will never, ever invade again. Death will never interfere. Death will never threaten the righteous. Never. It cannot because it will be the last enemy which is defeated. It will be defeated and put away and death will be no more. And the righteous never have to suffer that death. That is the path of life. That is eternal life. Second, the righteous also enjoy the presence of God. And this is really what we long for. In your presence is the fullness of joy. We long for and look forward to the presence of God, to see Him face to face as a man sees a friend. We can't see the presence of God now. We can't enjoy the, the full revelation of who God is now because we would be consumed. But ultimately, someday we will stand in the presence of God and it will be our delight and our joy to behold Him forever and to be with Him forever and to be around Him forever and to have Him around us forever. That's, that's the blessing to the righteous. David is looking forward through death, remember now, into the age to come. And the third thing that the righteous get is the righteous get fullness of joy. That is in verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, there is joy without end, joy without measure. It is fullness of joy. Now, the whole idea of fullness of joy is not something that you and I can even really understand in this life. You have never, no matter what joy you have ever, ever experienced, you have never experienced fullness of joy. Never in this life. Every joy you have ever had has come to an end. It has been mixed with sorrow. It has decreased over time. It has been interrupted in some way, or it has been short-lived. Every joy. You say, no, not the joy. I mean, I got married and that was the joy of my life. That was never anything but pure fullness of joy. Who are you fooling? You know that that is You know that there have been times when it has not been the fullness of joy. It has not been infinite joy and everlasting joy. There are always tough times in marriage. Oh, no, when my child was born, that was the fullness of joy. No, it wasn't. It was a glimpse at what the fullness of joy is. But the first sleepless night, it was a joy mixed with sorrow. The first dirty diaper was a joy mixed with disgust. Every joy you have ever experienced in this life has been mixed with sorrow. It has been short-lived. It has been nothing more than a glimmer and a glimpse, just a, just, a, just a slight taste of what infinite joy will ultimately be. Spurgeon says, Heaven's joys are without measure, without mixture, and without end. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, not the golfer, said, There will be nothing to breed sorrow in heaven. There shall be joy and nothing but joy. Heaven is set out by that phrase, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Here joy comes into us. There we enter into joy. The joys we have here are from heaven. The joys that we shall have with Christ are without measure and without mixture. Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan and not a country music singer, said the joys of heaven never fade, never wither, never die, never are lessened or nor interrupted. The joys of the saints in heaven is a constant joy, an everlasting joy, in the root and in the cause and in the matter of it and in the objects of it. Their joy lasts forever whose objects last forever. Because God himself is the object and the source of joy, and because he can never end, and because he can never be diminished, the joy that he gives also will never come to an end. And every joy we have ever experienced, no matter how precious, has only been a glimpse of what David says rests in God's presence and awaits us for all of eternity. Joys without measure, joys without mixture, joys without end. And thy presence is everlasting in fullness of joy. And then look at the fourth thing that the righteous enjoy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The eternity, the righteous enjoy an eternity of pleasures. Do you think that God has failed to plan your eternity? Do you think that he's just planned this, this life, this world? Do you think we're all going to get on the new heavens and new earth and glorified bodies and say, Alright, what's next? And have God say, Well, you know what? I didn't really think this far ahead. I, I don't know what's less. Let's discover what is next. No, no. In the right hand, in God's gracious right hand, Our pleasures stored up for you and for I forever. A never-ending flow of pleasures. That is what heaven is. Heaven is one delight after another, one discovery after another, one experience after another, one pleasure, one joy, things to learn, things to do, things to create, places to go, people to see, conversations to have, one delight and one joy forever and forever and forever. I believe that God has planned and He has purposed and He he has planned the existence every detail of my future in eternity. He has planned it all. He knows it all. And He has planned for me joys, pleasures, that He has planned for me a million years from now. And I won't get them when I step through the gates of heaven. But He has planned for me a never-ending flow of pleasures. And that is for every saint, every believer gets that. Every righteous person gets pleasures forever dispensed and given by the gracious right hand of a sovereign king. Millions of years from now, And millions upon millions of years from now, never-ending pleasures, never-ending delights, never-ending enjoyments, never-ending joy. That's the perspective of the psalmist. That is the pleasures that the righteous get. So now we're back to where we started. The Lord secures the righteous, not only in this life, but through death and into the life to come. Right? If I am secure in the next life, I am secure in this life. And if God has secured me in this life, He will secure me all the way through my death and into the life to come. And all of these blessings and pleasures and treasures that we have described and we have seen in this psalm, all of it belongs to the righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but we get it entirely by grace. Now, those are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the righteous, for the believing. But what about for the unbelieving? The implication for the unbeliever is this. You will stand and face this risen Christ, this risen King, and this God of all creation someday. And you will give an account for every sin, every act of wickedness, every disobedient deed that you have ever done, every wicked motive of your heart. You will stand before him. And if you do not have a sin bearer, God will find you guilty on the day of judgment because you are guilty. And every time you have, every time you have lied, every time you have stolen, every time you've gossiped or slammed or coveted something that was not yours, you have violated God's law. And the Bible says that you have heaped up a store of wrath waiting for the day of judgment. And none of the blessings that are described here belong to you because you do not belong to him. But God has provided a way by which you can be forgiven of your sins. He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on the cross to pay the price for sin, to atone for the sin of all those who will believe on Him for eternal life. And God offers you clemency. He offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you everlasting life today, but it comes on His terms, not yours, His terms. He's the judge. He sets the terms, and His terms are repentance and faith. So you must repent. That means turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's promise to you is that when you do that, he will give you everlasting life and He will forgive your sins. Not because you have done anything righteous. Not because you have done anything good. But in fact, because somebody else did something entirely on your behalf. Jesus Christ died, He was buried, and He rose again the third day. So, to, to secure all of these blessings for all those who will trust His Son. So I beg of you, trust Christ today. If you die and you have not trusted Christ, you will find Him not as a gracious Savior. Not as the source of all of your pleasures and joys for all of eternity. But you will find Him to be an inescapable judge. He will pour out His wrath upon you because His wrath abides upon you because you have not trusted His Son. Let's bow together. Our Father, we are grateful for all that You have done for us in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these blessings that we have described, they they stretch our minds and our imagination. and They delight our hearts and they encourage us in our walk with You. We are so thankful for these things and we know that they come to us on the basis of what Jesus has done. We have nothing to bring to You. We have no righteousness in ourselves. We have only sin that we bring to the table. We thank You that You have provided a way whereby we can be forgiven. Thank You for the resurrection of Christ. Thank You that You did not abandon His soul to Sheol, to the grave, and You did not allow His flesh to suffer decay. And because of what He has done and His resurrection, we too are guaranteed to rise again after this life, and that You will not abandon our soul to the grave either, but we will enjoy an eternity of pleasures and enjoyments and joy before You. Thank You for that. Thank You that You have gifted us in this way. Thank you for all of these blessings in the name of your dear Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.